Hello, and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. We are your hosts. I am an incredible rapper named The Bull Bay. And I am a mind-blowing stand-up comic. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sells. On this season of So Curious, we are talking all about the science behind love, sex, and relationships. Mm. Everything from your brain on love to why we obsess over our favorite television characters to how science and tech are changing our relationships with each other. For this episode, we are going to be talking with the VP of Grindr, Patrick Lenahan, and we're going to be discussing the popular gay dating app. And later, we are joined by the chief bioscientist of the Franklin Institute, Dr. Jayatri Das, to get some insight into the role science plays in the behaviors and social norms around hookup culture. Bay, I'm going to be honest with you. I am so stoked to talk to our first guest. Something that I know about Grinder is that it's less of an algorithm and it's more proximity based, which is like pretty ahead of its time. Yeah. So with Tinder, there's more of this complicated algorithm, but Grinder is all about proximity. Yeah. So Grinder presents you with options based on who is closest to you physically, literally down to the 100 foot measurement. And the cool thing about Grindr is it was so revolutionary because it was the first platform to really build community for gay people in your area. Have you ever been to New York's Pride? I haven't. As a gay myself, <laughs> Pride rocks. You can't walk more than 100 feet without running into Grindr merch. It is everywhere. They are like the kings of this um and they really found a way to bring together communities especially in areas where it might not be as okay to be you know outwardly gay maybe in like you know different parts of the country different parts of the world to still be able to find each other you know yeah which is very cool yeah very cool. like not every uh town in <laughs> rural america is gonna have a gay bar right right or yeah. just interest right yeah. interest that that, that kind of intersect in these particular communities and pockets of places mm -hmm. yeah how are you supposed to meet your fellow gay people if there's no drag brunch yeah <laughs> that's you where know, i've met all my closest friends mimosas <laughs> yeah well, this is a great time to introduce our first guest, who knows more about Grindr than most people. Patrick Lenahan is vice president and head of communications at Grindr, the world's largest social networking app for gay, bi, trans, and queer people. As Grindr's chief spokesperson, Patrick represents the company to media, investors, and the broader LGBTQ plus community. Thank you so much for being here, Patrick. Welcome to the So Curious podcast. Can you tell us more about your history, the history of Grindr, how revolutionary it has been for the gay community and beyond. I came out uh, as a gay man 20 years ago. When I came out, and I think that a lot of people had this experience, even though I lived in like northern suburban New Jersey, which is relatively cosmopolitan, and you can sort of like see Manhattan from certain points in town, you still have this impression that you're the only gay person in the world. And that has been, I think, a prevailing experience for a lot of queer people throughout history, not knowing whether or not there are people like them and not being able to find one another. That sense of isolation is incredibly heavy uh, and tough to carry. And that's what queer community has been, is people coming together around these commonalities. Grindr was invented in 2009, relatively soon after the launch of the iPhone, right? Like this is like an early first generation like app. Um, when apps were the sexiest new thing. There's uh, an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> right, those sorts of commercials. 
and it was invented by this guy, Joel Simkai in Los Angeles, who was like, I want to find my people. I want to find gay people. And it's got to be easier, you know, than looking around and guessing. And so he, he developed this really, really, really simple technology. And it's just people who create profiles and seeing those people in proximity. If you download Grindr today, it is not very, it's not really dissimilar from what you would have seen in 2009. You see upon creating an account, the first hundred people who are closest to you who are also on the app. And you see the information about those people that they choose to share with you. A profile photo, their gender, their age, what they're into and interests, whether or not they want to share photos, uh, whether or not they want to meet up, things like that. Uh, and you can see whether they're online and you can chat with anybody who's sort of in your area. And then there's sort of, there's a variety of feature sets that are sort of behind some paywalls um, and that expand your, you know, your reach uh, and your ability to talk to other people, you know, to 600 or an unlimited. And, you know, we have roughly 12 million monthly active users, uh, which is a lot of people, and they're all queer, and they're all looking to connect with one another. And so our mission, which this is now a 13-year-old company, um, and so it's it's been through different leaders and groups of people running it, but I think the mission has stayed more or less the same, and, and the way we describe it is it's our mission to connect queer or LGBTQ plus people with one another and with the world. And you mentioned proximity just a second ago. Why is that so important to building community? You know, the internet has opened up the world to everybody and we can create community online, but speak really quickly to proximal communing and just connecting. I think a lot of social media aims to be your social relationships, to completely intermediate them. And that is not what Grindr does. Grindr is there to accelerate your social relationships with people offline. And so the point is to actually meet people uh, and to get to know people. And yeah, you can chat on the app for as long as you want. And you know, if that's where you're most comfortable and feel like connecting there is, is what's right for you, then that's great. But the idea is that, you know, people who are close to one another will want to meet up in person. And we are encouraging of that. Obviously, you have to be safe. And we have this like very detailed, robust safety guide that we share with all of our users. And but we think, you know, people meeting people is really, really important. It's sort of like the foundation of, right? It's somewhere in the middle of Maslow's hierarchy. And so we think it's pretty, it's pretty important. Well, first of all, I just want to say, I love what you just said a few minutes ago about growing up in a in a smaller town and then just really feeling like you're the only queer person there. I'm from the suburbs outside of Philly. And it's so interesting how Philly is such a, I mean, famously gay, you know, we have the gayborhood and that's where I ended up going to college. Um, but prior to that, I, I I remember feeling the exact same way. It's like, oh, I'm the sole gay person in the world. <laughs> and then I moved into a place called, on Google Maps, called the gayborhood <laughs> with rainbow signs on every street sign and, you know, just amazing. Um, so I, I love that thought. I've never put that into words before. But can you tell me in your personal experience, did you use Grindr prior to working for Grindr? Oh, yes. Funny story. <laughs> we love those. <laughs> I was living in the Middle East in Doha, Qatar, and a friend of mine came back from the U.S. and was like, you would not believe what they have now. I was like, what? <laughs> like, there's an app just to find other gay people. <laughs> what? <laughs> and you couldn't download it there. Mm. And there were there are reasons why you couldn't download it there that, you know, you could fill a whole other podcast about. Um, but so I didn't really download it until after I, le I was in Doha for two years and then I moved to San Francisco. And when I got to San Francisco, you know, I land there. I 
you know, spent years in the Middle East. I'm not sort of acculturated to, you know, <laughs> Northern California <laughs> and didn't have any gay friends there. And, and so the first thing I did was download Grindr. And even though I lived like a mile from the Castro, that was still one of the ways where I started to make uh, gay and queer friends right off the jump. And I was like, oh my God, there's so many of us here. Grinder does not feel like Match.com, Tinder, <laughs> mm-hmm. Bumble. It's not designed the same way. It came before these apps and, and, and it's designed very, very differently. So those apps all, it's like a swipe model, right? You're like shown a card and you see some information, you see a picture, you see some pictures. It's left or right and you make a decision and like maybe you match, maybe you don't. There's a, a control, basically a control valve these companies have of like how many people they're showing you and it's algorithmically determined and it's probably a little bit like gambly, right? Like they're going to give you a match one in every 125 swipes to keep you interested and engaged. We don't do that. Uh, that's not the point. You know, we hope people make connection and at the core of the queer LGBTQ experience, like is sex in one way, shape or form, right? Sexual expression, sexual exploration, identity. So at the core of any gay app is gonna be sex, but it's much more than that, I think. And the app's structure of the application speaks to that. My own personal experience with Grindr has been way better when it's about just making friends and chatting with people in new places than like getting into the whole like hookup-y thing. Like that's, you know, fine. That's fine and good and great. Um, but personally, I, I have been in my life less frustrated when I'm just on there looking for friends and, and people. Did the community create Grinder, or did Grinder help cultivate the community, how people interact and talk to one another? I will say definitely Grinder did not create the community. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, specifically hookup culture, like, you know, uh, did, did the app create that culture or did the co- was the culture already there? And Definitely that- not, I think. Okay, <laughs> great, great, great. The, the great thing about being gay is there's actually this incredibly long and well-documented history, particularly since the 1960s, um, even since the 1950s. Actually, for like the last 2000 years, there's like some pretty fascinating history documented of LGBTQ people, whether or not they were called that. And more recently, you've got books like Dancer from the Dance and Faggots and Giovanni's Room. And these are all books that were written in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And they describe a culture that anybody who's in the queer community today would read and go, oh, yeah, like, that sounds like Saturday night at $3 bill. (laughs) I think hookup culture existed um, for sure, although most of my adult sexual life has been since Grindr was out. But at the same time, Grindr is not so much a product of the community. Grindr is like so many pieces of technology, kind of like a mirror or a cipher for human behavior, right? It's like at its core, it's like a very simple and basic piece of technology, right? It's literally just accounts on a proximity grid. That is like really basic stuff. And all of our competitors have copied it. (laughs) So it's really how you use it. And I think it's really, you know, with all pieces of technology, like Gia Tolentino's trick mirror, where she talks about, you know, we look at this thing and we see human behavior on this unbelievably massive scale that we probably were never supposed to see it at, right? And I think a lot of what we see in this giant, giant trick mirror is stuff that we don't particularly like sometimes. Uh, And sometimes it's stuff that we do really like. But we have, I think, a tendency to focus on stuff that we don't. Um, In any event, I think that it's definitely a product of gay culture in many ways. I mean, oh, I don't know. We could go deep on this for a long time. <laughs> I think to just straight answer your question, 
Grinder is more the product of the community than anything else. Yeah. And I feel like one of the the beauty of Grinder specifically is that it's creating it's taking something with so much history like you said that had to at many points in history be underground and making it visible and then as a result safer in so many ways and making it more transparent, which is incredible. Um And so I'm curious because, um, you know, for example, during like New York Pride or Philly Pride, there is so much Grindr merch everywhere, right? Which is amazing. Um, What would you say is Grindr's presence offline? Like, what is your mission in supporting, you know, local queer spaces? This is something about which I personally care a great deal. And the company is like really, really committed to. Talked about how we see ourselves as facilitating and accelerating social relationships, not replacing them. And there's a whole, and right, the the sort of hyper-local nature of our business is showing people things like right there, right, that they can go and walk to and meet. And we want that to carry over into how we support queer businesses, bars, nightlife, and experiences. That over the last two years has been something that's been pretty hard to do uh, with COVID. And we've, we've sort of fought that fight uh, as everyone else has. We've done a lot to partner with a group called Save Our Spaces, which is um, focused specifically on helping keep LGBTQ bars uh, and nightlife venues open uh, and thriving. And we've, I think, done 30 different bar activations since, you know, all COVID protocol compliant, just to keep driving traffic to those bars where, you know, where we traditionally have showed up. um, And we want to make sure those bars are continue to be successful. Um, there is no grinder without gay spaces. Uh, there's really not, right? I think that there's a lot of, um, one thread of things that I hear, and you know, I've, I've been at the company three months, so I've heard everybody has called me to criticize the company and to praise the company, and I've sort of heard everything from every side, and one criticism is, oh, well, grinder's killing gay bars. And I was like, I don't actually know if that's true, because yes, like, you can now go on grinder and meet people, and before you could only really go to gay bars, at the same time, it's become much more socially acceptable to be gay. So I think gay people are showing up sort of every nowhere. And everywhere is a little bit of a gay bar now. Um, and, you know, you can take it or leave it. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in having space that is specifically for queer people and puts queer people first. And um, I think we are we are looking for now that we're moving into sort of this next phase of COVID where things are, we know how to handle things. Um, I think we're, we're going to, be doing more stuff offline that we're really excited about. Just for people who may be listening and aren't super familiar with the logistics of Grindr, how, can you just tell us how you specifically provide that info to other users? Totally. So when you sign up, we walk you through, right? You sort of have to like click all the boxes and say all the things. And we encourage you to take a look at our, our privacy policy and we will regularly push uh, into the inbox, which is just you know where all your messages show up. We'll push messages letting you know about things going on in your community. Um, we'll let you know about you know if there's safety things going on, or you know there have definitely been times when you know there's been an STI outbreak in a particular area, and we've been able to push a notification, you know, to encourage testing, things like that. So that like really basic. It's really basic. It's just sort of sending, me- literally sending messages to people based on where they are with the information that we think that they're going to need. And this becomes particularly helpful in countries where, because we're actually, we're, we're not just operational in the U.S., we're operational in nearly every country in the world. And that includes countries where it is illegal to be gay. And, you know, we don't operate in those countries because we think it's like we're going to get subscription revenue or anything like that. We operate in those countries because 
the third party LGBTQ plus activists who are operational there have asked us to stay operational in those countries because we create opportunity for people there to connect with one another that they really wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, there's a greater burden of security in those places. So in places like Egypt, we push daily safety messages to our users, letting them know about what's going on. And we do that in a number of different places where so it is much more risky to be gay. And that, again, that, that information typically is coming from not, it's not our information, it's information from these nonprofits and third parties. We're just acting as connective tissue, again, and making sure our users stay safe. But, um, you know, and we don't monetize or make any money off of these places. This is, this is purely like, this is just the right thing to do to stay in these countries and to help people connect with one another, even if there are risks. Which is amazing. And I'm really happy wow. that you're here to share that. So people know that, you know, Grindr kind of extends beyond, you know, connections. It's also information. It's also safety. It's, also, it's all these different things rolled into one. So Patrick Lennon, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and talk to us about, you know, not just the app. And not just the culture, but the overall community mm. and, and just learning these different dynamics. You know, it certainly was enlightening for me. Yeah. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you guys for having me on. Really appreciate it. So what surprised you most about this conversation around Grindr? Oh, my God. I thought I knew everything about Grindr. My biggest takeaway from that is how Grindr works in other parts of the world and areas where it might not at all be okay. It's sometimes illegal to be gay. And so then they have the whole, not just their usual community and all of that, but then they also have the ability with that those extra features in places like that where they have notifications to keep yourself physically safe keep your health safe that is <laughs> dope <laughs> no no it's really important like if there's an sti outbreak mm -hmm. in a certain pocket of, of, of a place you can know about that and have information about your health is always good for me what stood out was it's not all about sex mm. some of this was just about like building community and meeting people with similar interests you might be in a space where obviously we live in a cis hetero dominated mm -hmm. narrative space in most of our communities. So being able to navigate and meet new people is, is always fun and always great. We're social animals. We need to always build and grow no matter what our orientations are. Yeah, no, not everyone gets the luxury of living in the gayborhood in Philadelphia like I did all through college. <laughs> I'm sure that was fun. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> On the topic of hookups, first of all, we can see how insane the changes in science and medicine the positive changes have been from as far as hundreds of years ago to 50 years ago to even five years ago. And it really changes the risks and the perception of hookup culture, right? Because now we have a lot more of an ability to do it safely. Absolutely. I haven't really like hooked up a bunch and I, mm -hmm. I'm in a relationship right now, so I don't really hook up um, at all. Mm -hmm. But what I really appreciate is just how that's really being held as a normal human behavior. Mm. The need or desire, the urge to want to connect with someone and be intimate or have a moment, a brief moment, but do it safely and do it in a way where we're not dehumanizing anyone or, or jeopardizing anyone's health. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that really entering the space of science and behavior and medicine and so on and so forth. As with all questions that come up, we got to consult with our girl, the chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute, Dr. Jayatri Das. Hey, Bay. Hey, Kirsten. Hey. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. So we're talking hookup culture, right? Uh, yeah. Hell yeah. 
Yeah, we are. Are we always? <laughs> well, I think what fascinates me as an entry point into this topic is just how common it is. You know, I was looking at some data and some of the most recent data actually suggests that looking at college students, um, 60 to 80% of college students have had some type of hookup experience. Um, and it's you know common among younger teens as well. But this is clearly like a, you know, a very common experience that's kind of embedded in our culture these days. 60 to 80% is a large number. Yeah. That's a big number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Jayatri, tell us a little bit about your research in the topic of hookup culture. Well, one of the things that I was interested in from a biological point of view is sort of where, where is this culture coming from? Um, because maybe it's always existed, <laughs> but we're also seeing some changes in like physiological trends about how our bodies work um, that intersect again with, you know, some social trends that I think people are looking at as a reason for why this, there's this prevalence of, of hookup culture. And so if you look at the United States, the age at which people get married and reproduce is getting later and later. Right. And that's definitely tied to a lot of social factors. Um, and at the same time, the age at which kids are reaching puberty is getting younger. Uh, and so there's this longer time span in which, you know, young adults are, are ready for reproduction and physiological um, interactions in that sense. Um, but they're not psychologically or socially ready to settle down yet. Um, and so that increased time frame, I think, is part of the reason that scientists and social scientists think that um, has given rise to the, to the prevalence of hookup culture. Interesting. So if I'm understanding you correctly, there's a much larger gap now between when you're physically able to and might have the physical urges to have sex versus when socially and logistically and all of that, you can actually, you know, be building relationships. And so that gap is sort of leading to things like hookups. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, if you look at some of the causes of why we think kids are, are entering puberty earlier, you look at, you know, just the fact that we're healthier across the board. <laughs> um, so there's, there's lower rates of disease, you know, nutrition is, is changing. Um, people have more stability in terms of their health, their food, their shelter. Um, there, there's also some theories that, you know, there's potential environmental exposure to chemicals that might disrupt our hormone function. There's a lot of questions. We don't really know why, but you can see trends in that the average age of puberty has decreased by almost a year, which is pretty significant when you're thinking about the lifespan of kids. Yeah. What was the prior average age? Like, what did it downgrade to? So you're seeing like shifts from, you know, age 11, 12 down to nine or 10. I mean, you know, hundreds of years ago, we were looking at like puberty at age 15, 16. Wow. <laughs> right? when, when people were really facing a lot of hardships um, and just sort of getting to that age beyond like childhood disease. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting because I feel like in older days, at least the way it's portrayed in movies, yeah, you did go through puberty later, but then that was immediately the age you like got married. Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? So there was no that, gap. <laughs> you didn't have time to hook up. <laughs> yeah, right. Wow, no time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm starting to notice that there seems to be like some legitimacy around just sexual pleasures and developing a, a, a language around that. And maybe hookups are part of it. I don't know. Okay, so we're going to switch gears to part two of Body of Knowledge. We went to the internet to find out what people are asking. 
about hooking up. We typed in how do hookups and we let the Google algorithm do the rest. I'm so curious to see what comes up. <laughs> we saw some of the most commonly asked questions about hookups were, how do hookups work? I would love to know as well. If I ever find out, I will let them know. Yeah, I mean, should I should I try to answer that? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, how do hookups work? Well, you know, it's normally after 7 p.m. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Okay, so the next question that we put into our uh, the Google search, right, is uh, how do hookups and the autocomplete, how do hookups start? How do hookups start? I um, mean, you know, a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, wearing your hottest outfit, feeling good. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd imagine it's different for everyone. There's different uh, entry points, I guess. That may have been a terrible framing, but uh, <laughs> there's platforms and apps and, you know, numbers and groups and communities there's just different ways i guess to do it in you know 2022 you know i mean some of the some of the work i was reading really focused on the fact that both the motivations to hook up as well as the reactions afterward that people experience are really complicated and we don't understand them very well so for example like in one study they looked at people who were experiencing maybe feelings of loneliness or depressive symptoms who might look at a hookup as a way to feel better. And in those people, you know, they did see a decrease in those feelings um, after hooking up. So there's like a positive impact there. But in the same study, if you looked at people who had fewer of those depressive symptoms starting out, then often the, these casual engagements end up, you know, feeling more depressed afterwards. So it's hard to figure out and, you know, to really pinpoint why people are doing this for, you know, for any specific reason. I think it really differs. And there's a whole spectrum of reactions and feelings that people feel afterwards. Mm. Next, we continued typing in how do hookups? And the next question was, end. how do hookups end? Bay? Uh, hopefully pleasantly with everyone being, you know, okay with what took place. Hopefully amicably. Yeah, you know, uh, and quietly. <laughs> Great. Jay I mean, Andrew, what do you think? How do hookups end? There's a whole spectrum, right? There's a little bit of data in terms of what makes people more likely to feel regret. <laughs> and some of what I read was that one night stands or hooking up with somebody that you've known for less than 24 hours are two factors that are more likely to predict whether you'll feel regret afterwards. Damn, that tracks though. I mean, it seems like common sense there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Wasn't really surprised to read that. Jayatri, as always, thank you so much. And thank you so much to Patrick for being on this episode of So Curious. Next week, we are gonna talk about what is going on under the surface when we fall in love. Literally, like biologically, what is going on? <laughs> this and more on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and music and content. Just subscribe right now. <laughs> Do it. So Curious is presented by the Franklin Institute. And special thanks to the Franklin Institute producers, Joy Montefusco and Dr. Jayatri Das. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. The managing producer is Emily Cherish. The producer is Liliana Green. The lead audio engineer and editor is Christian Cederland. 
head of operations is Christopher Plant, and the editors are Lauren DeLuca and Justin Berger. The science writer is Kira Vayette, and the graphic designer is Emma Sager. And I am the Boa Bay, signing off for today. And I am Kirsten Michelle Sills, also signing off for today. And we will catch you next week. See ya.